Welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. On today's episode, we'll go over the topic of electrolyte disturbances from the renal section on MedBullets.com. Let's start this episode with a clinical snapshot. A 56-year-old man is brought to the emergency department by his son due to mild confusion and shortness of breath. Prior to symptom development, he needed to sleep on a recliner due to feeling short of breath while supine. Medical history is significant for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and a prior myocardial infarction requiring coronary artery bypass grafting. On physical exam, the patient is altered but able to follow commands. There is jugular venous distension, an S3 heart sound, and 2-plus lower extremity pitting edema. Laboratory testing is significant for a brain natriuretic peptide of 950 picograms per milliliter and a serum sodium of 130 millimoles per liter. This patient was diagnosed with hyponatremia secondary to congestive heart failure. Now let's get into the episode. We'll go over the differences between hyponatremia and hypernatremia, the differences between hypokalemia and hyperkalemia, the differences between hypocalcemia and hypercalcemia, the difference between hypomagnesemia and hypermagnesemia, and finally the difference between hypophosphatemia and hyperphosphatemia. So starting with hyponatremia, this is defined as a serum sodium of less than 135 millimoles per liter. The etiology can be from pseudo-hyponatremia, from hyperglycemia or hyperlipidemia. It can be from hypervolemic hyponatremia, secondary to congestive heart failure, nephrotic syndrome, cirrhosis, or renal insufficiency. Hypovolemic hyponatremia, secondary to vomiting and diarrhea, burns, sweating, cystic fibrosis, diuretic use, for example, thiazides, angiotensin-converting enzyme or ACE inhibitors, and adrenal insufficiency. Finally, hyponatremia can also be secondary to euvolemic hyponatremia from psychogenic polydipsia, hypothyroidism, syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone or SIADH, diuretic use, and ACE inhibitors. The presentation of hyponatremia includes stupor, coma, seizures, nausea, and or malaise. Studies in the workup of hyponatremia should assess for volume status as well as serum electrolyte and urine studies. Management should address the underlying cause, and diagnostic studies include urine electrolytes and serum osmolality. Management in asymptomatic patients should be free water restriction. Moderate hyponatremia can be treated with IV normal saline and loop diuretics may be added. Severe hyponatremia should be treated with hypertonic or 3% saline. As far as complications, know that rapid correction of hyponatremia can lead to osmotic demyelination syndrome. Now let's talk about hypernatremia. This is defined as a serum sodium of greater than 145 millimoles per liter. The etiology can be from insensible losses, for example sweating, osmotic diarrhea, osmotic diuresis, for example diabetic ketoacidosis, poor fluid intake, diuretic use, osmotic diuresis, vomiting and diarrhea, central and nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, and hypertonic sodium gain. The presentation of hypernatremia includes stupor, coma, and seizure. Studies include assessing volume status as well as serum electrolyte in urine studies. Treatment should address the underlying cause. You will also use intravenous or IV 5% dextrose in water, otherwise known as D5W, and isotonic fluids when hypovolemic. As far as complications, know that rapid correction of hypernatremia can lead to cerebral edema and herniation from organic osmolytes causing osmotic shifting of fluid into the brain. Now let's go over the differences between hypokalemia and hyperkalemia. Starting with hypokalemia, this is defined as a serum potassium of less than 3.5 milliequivalents per liter. 
In terms of etiology, this can be from increased insulin, hyperglycemia, which stimulates endogenous insulin secretion from the pancreas in normal conditions. Etiology can be secondary to beta-2 adrenergic agonists, alkalosis, and know that you can consider contraction alkalosis when there is a low-volume state, high pH, and hypokalemia, which should be treated with fluids. Other etiologies of hypokalemia can be from hypoosmolality, diarrhea, and dehydration, secondary to activation of the RAA system, causing potassium and hydrogen ion wasting. The presentation of hypokalemia includes muscle and cardiac dysfunction. Specific muscular symptoms include abdominal cramping, as well as muscle weakness and cramping. Cardiac symptoms include palpitations. These patients can also present with paresthesias, as well as nausea and vomiting. Studies to obtain in the workup of hypokalemia includes an EKG, which will show U-waves and T-wave flattening. The treatment of hypokalemia is to address the underlying cause and potassium repletion. Remember to not use dextrose-containing fluids, as this will stimulate insulin release and shift potassium within the cell, and this actually worsens the hypokalemia. Remember, you should also replace magnesium in the setting of magnesium deficiency. Moving on to hyperkalemia, this is defined as a serum potassium of greater than 5 to 5.5 milliequivalents per liter. The etiology can be from insulin deficiency, beta-2 adrenergic antagonists, acidosis, in which cells attempt to buffer excess hydrogen ions to shift these ions into the cells, and in exchange for this intracellular uptake of hydrogen, potassium is transferred out of the cell, and this attempts to achieve electroneutrality. The etiology of hyperkalemia can also be from digitalis, secondary to dose-dependent sodium-potassium ATPase pump inhibition. It could also be from cell lysis, for example, rhabdomyolysis, exercise, hyperosmolarity, succinylcholine, TMP-SMX, and ACE inhibitors. In terms of the presentation of hyperkalemia, patients can have muscle and cardiac dysfunction. Specific muscular symptoms include myalgias, muscle paralysis, and chest pain. And cardiac symptoms include arrhythmias and palpitations. These patients can also present with nausea and vomiting, as well as paresthesias. Studies to obtain in the workup of hyperkalemia includes an EKG, in which you may find peak T waves and a wide QRS complex. The treatment should, of course, address the underlying cause. You will use IV calcium gluconate, which has no effect on potassium levels, but stabilizes the myocardium. The treatment should also focus on shifting potassium within the cells, and this can be done with insulin plus glucose and beta-2 adrenergic agonists. Another goal of treatment is lowering body potassium, and this can be done with sodium polystyrene sulfonate, which is a cation exchange resin. Finally, dialysis is used in patients unresponsive to medical therapy. Now let's go over the differences between hypocalcemia and hypercalcemia. Hypocalcemia is defined as serum total calcium of less than 8.4 mg per deciliter. Know that decreased albumin can cause a decreased total calcium but a normal free calcium, thus the patient is asymptomatic. Know that the ionized fraction of calcium is less than 4.4 mg per deciliter. The etiology of hypocalcemia can be from renal failure, hypoparathyroidism, vitamin D deficiency, hypomagnesemia, which inhibits PTH release, pancreatitis, and alkalemia. The presentation of hypocalcemia includes seizures, tetany, chvastaxine, in which you'll have ipsilateral facial muscle contraction caused by tapping of the facial nerve. And Trousseau's sign is carpopedal spasms by inflating the sphygmomanometer above the systolic blood pressure. In terms of studies in the workup of hypocalcemia, you should obtain an EKG, which will likely show QTC prolongation. The treatment is, of course, to address the underlying cause, 
and know that asymptomatic or patients with chronic hypocalcemia should be treated with oral calcium replacement therapy, such as calcium citrate or calcium carbonate. You should also treat these patients with vitamin D supplementation, as well as thiazides for patients with hypoparathyroidism. Symptomatic patients should be treated with IV calcium gluconate, however know that oral calcium replacement is appropriate if there are minor symptoms. Chronic renal failure should be treated with phosphate binders, oral calcium replacement, and calcitriol. Moving on to hypercalcemia, this is defined as a serum total calcium of greater than 10.5 mg per deciliter, and know that the ionized fraction of calcium will be greater than 5.6 mg per deciliter. The etiology of hypercalcemia can be from hyperparathyroidism, humoral hypercalcemia of malignancy, vitamin D overdose, granulomatous diseases like sarcoidosis, thiazide diuretics, lithium, calcium-containing antacids, familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia, and immobilization. In terms of humoral hypercalcemia of malignancy, know that there will be higher calcium with more symptomatic patients, typically greater than 12 mg per deciliter. This can be secondary to parathyroid hormone-related peptide, or PTHRP, and is associated with squamous cell cancer and solid tumors involving the lung, esophagus, skin, cervix, breast, and kidney. The presentation of hypercalcemia includes nephrolithiasis, polyuria, muscle weakness, bone pain, and abdominal pain secondary to bowel hypomotility and constipation. These patients can also present with confusion, stupor, and coma. Remember the mnemonic stones, bones, groans, thrones, and psychiatric overtones where stones refers to renal, bones refers to pain, groans refers to abdominal pain, thrones refers to increased urinary frequency, and psychiatric overtones refers to altered mental status. As far as studies to obtain in the workup of hypercalcemia, note that serum calcium equals free calcium plus calcium that is bound to albumin. An EKG in the setting of hypercalcemia will show shortened QTC intervals. Remember that in the setting of hypocalcemia, you will have prolonged QTC intervals. Treatment of hypercalcemia should, of course, address the underlying cause. It is also treated with IV isotonic normal saline, which increases urinary calcium excretion. It can also be treated with calcitonin, which impairs bone resorption and increases urinary calcium excretion. Hypercalcemia can also be treated with bisphosphonates, for example, zoledronic acid and pomidronate. This has a delayed onset of action, impairs bone resorption, and has long-term calcium control. Finally, know that loop diuretics increases urinary calcium excretion. Now let's go over the differences between hypomagnesemia and hypermagnesemia. Hypomagnesemia is defined as a serum magnesium that is typically less than 1.8 mg per deciliter. The etiology can be from magnesium redistribution from refeeding syndrome, malnutrition, alcohol use disorder, anorexia nervosa, proton pump inhibitors, loop diuretics, and digoxin. The presentation involves tetany, torsade de pointe, hypokalemia, and hypocalcemia when it is significant, that is when the magnesium is less than 1.2 mg per deciliter. As far as studies to obtain in the workup of hypomagnesemia, you will obtain an EKG in which you will find U-waves, T-wave flattening, QT prolongation, and a widened QRS complex. Treatment will be magnesium repletion, and in the setting of asymptomatic patients, you can use oral magnesium supplementation, However, in the setting of severe or symptomatic hypomagnesemia, you will use IV magnesium sulfate. Moving on to hypermagnesemia, this is defined as a serum magnesium that is typically greater than 2.6 mg per deciliter. The ideology can be secondary to increased magnesium ingestion, secondary to magnesium cathartics, antacids, laxatives, and dietary supplements. Hypermagnesemia can also be secondary to renal insufficiency.
As far as the presentation of hypermagnesemia, these patients can show decreased deep tendon reflexes, bradycardia, cardiac arrest, and hypocalcemia. As far as studies, an EKG in the setting of hypermagnesemia will show PR, QRS, and QT prolongation, as well as heart block. The treatment of hypermagnesemia is to address the underlying cause. You will use IV isotonic saline, as well as loop diuretics, which can be considered. Finally, let's end this review session going over the differences between hypophosphatemia and hyperphosphatemia. So hypophosphatemia is defined as a serum phosphate of less than 2.5 mg per deciliter. The etiology of hypophosphatemia can be from refeeding syndrome, hungry bone syndrome, inadequate phosphate intake, hyperparathyroidism, and phosphate binders. The presentation of hypophosphatemia can be weakness, muscle and bone pain, osteomalacia, and rickets. The treatment of hypophosphatemia should address the underlying cause, and in the setting of mild hypophosphatemia, you should increase dietary phosphate intake. In the setting of moderate hypophosphatemia, oral phosphate replacement therapy can be used, and know that you can use IV phosphate replacement in patients who are on a ventilator. In the setting of severe hypophosphatemia, these patients will also receive IV phosphate replacement. Moving on to hyperphosphatemia, this is defined as a serum phosphate of greater than 4.5 mg per deciliter. The etiology of hyperphosphatemia is acute phosphate ingestion, hypoparathyroidism, vitamin D toxicity, renal failure, rhabdomyolysis, and tumor lysis syndrome. As far as the presentation of hyperphosphatemia, these patients are typically asymptomatic. The treatment will be, of course, to address the underlying cause, use certain dietary modifications, and you can use phosphate binders like calcium carbonate or acetate. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. A 33-year-old man with a history of alcoholism and IV drug use presents to the emergency department after being found obtunded in public. The patient was not responsive and was promptly brought to the emergency department. His temperature is 102 degrees Fahrenheit or 38.9 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 107 over 55 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 148 per minute, respirations are 25 per minute, and oxygen saturation is 99% on room air. The patient is quickly intubated and initial resuscitation is started. He is sent to the intensive care unit. Day 1 in the intensive care unit laboratory studies are ordered and are as follows. Hemoglobin is 12 grams per deciliter, hematocrit is 36%, leukocyte count is 19,500 per cubic millimeter with a normal differential, and platelet count is 297,000 per cubic millimeter. Serum sodium is 139 milliequivalents per liter. Chloride is 100 milliequivalents per liter. Potassium is 3.1 milliequivalents per liter. Bicarbonate is 35 milliequivalents per liter. BUN is 33 milligrams per deciliter. Glucose is 111 milligrams per deciliter. And creatinine is 1.6 milligrams per deciliter. As far as the venous blood gas, the pH is 7.5. PCO2 is 45 millimeters of mercury. And PO2 is 40 millimeters of mercury. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment for this patient's acid-base disturbance? And the choices are 1. Decreased respiratory rate. 2. Furosemide. 3. Increased respiratory rate. 4. Normal saline. And 5. Sodium bicarbonate. The correct answer to this question is 4. Normal saline. So this patient is presenting with a metabolic alkalosis with hypokalemia in the setting of likely septic shock given the patient's fever, hypotension, and tachycardia in the setting of IV drug use. 
The most appropriate initial treatment for this patient's metabolic alkalosis is fluid administration or normal saline. To quickly review, acid-base disturbances are typically seen in critically ill patients and can lead to increased morbidity and mortality. The best treatment for any acid-slash-base disturbance is to treat the underlying cause. This may not always be practical, and for this reason, there are other tools the physician has to treat an abnormal acid-base status. An alkalosis can generally be thought of as a form of respiratory or a metabolic source. If from a respiratory source, the CO2 will be decreased. If the patient is intubated, the respiratory rate can be decreased to increase the CO2 and improve the acid-base status. However, if it is from a metabolic source, it is important to investigate the patient's volume status. A low-volume state can constitutively activate the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which will lead to constant potassium wasting, causing hypokalemia, hydrogen ion wasting causing a metabolic alkalosis, and chloride resorption causing a low urine chloride. Patients should be rehydrated, and this should correct the acid-base disturbance. In fluid-resistant metabolic alkalosis, the urinary chloride excretion will generally be high, that is greater than 20 milliequivalents per liter. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, decreased respiratory rate, is incorrect, as this would be appropriate if the patient had a respiratory alkalosis while being mechanically ventilated. Decreasing the respiratory rate would increase the CO2 and thus decrease the pH. This patient's alkalosis is likely from dehydration given his other laboratory derangements. Answer 2, furosemide, is incorrect, as this is a loop diuretic that would further worsen this patient's acid-base status. Diuresis with a loop diuretic would cause activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, further wasting potassium and hydrogen ions, leading to a worse alkalosis. Answer 3, increased respiratory rate, is incorrect, as increasing the respiratory rate would lead to hyperventilation and would decrease the CO2 and would worsen this patient's alkalosis. Increasing the respiratory rate should only be used for compensating for respiratory acidosis or a severe metabolic acidosis that cannot be immediately compensated otherwise, such as in septic shock. Finally, answer 5, sodium bicarbonate is incorrect, as this is a base and would worsen this patient's alkalosis. It is generally a poor treatment for an acidosis, and also the underlying cause should be addressed. To leave you with a bullet summary, patients with a metabolic alkalosis from dehydration should be given IV fluids. And moving on to the final question, a 34-year-old man is found in the desert of Arizona. He is confused and is not able to offer a history. He has a pack with him with many supplies and appears to have been in the desert for several days. His temperature is 98.5 degrees Fahrenheit or 36.9 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 103 over 61 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 140 per minute. Respirations are 21 per minute. And oxygen saturation is 97% on room air. Physical exam reveals a confused man who is moving all extremities and is protecting his airway. Laboratory studies are ordered and are as follows. Serum sodium is 165 milliequivalents per liter. Chloride is 102 milliequivalents per liter. Potassium is 4.3 milliequivalents per liter. Bicarbonate is 25 milliequivalents per liter. BUN is 39 milligrams per deciliter. Glucose is 77 milligrams per deciliter. And creatinine is 1.15 milligrams per deciliter. The patient is given 3 liters of Ringer lactate. He then begins jerking his extremities and is not responding to commands. The episode lasts 3 minutes and terminates before medications can be given. The patient is subsequently somnolent. He then experiences another episode. Which of the following is the most likely underlying etiology of this patient's symptoms? And the choices are 1. Impaired ATP production. 2. Increased NMDA GABA activity. 3. Medication noncompliance. 4. Organic osmolites. 
and 5. Osmotic demyelination. The correct answer to this question is 4. Organic osmolites. So this patient has been wandering in the desert for an extended period of time and is found to have a very high sodium, which likely happened over days given his adequate supplies and the extent of his sodium elevation. Given that the patient was administered 3 liters of fluids rapidly and has a seizure, he is likely experiencing cerebral edema due to rapid correction of his serum sodium caused by a fluid shift from organic osmolites produced in the CNS. To quickly review, hypernatremia should be thought of as occurring rapidly, that is over minutes to hours, versus over an extended period of time, that is days, as this affects management. Hypernatremia that occurs rapidly, such as while running a marathon, can be treated more rapidly with IV fluids to stabilize the patient. However, when hypernatremia happens slowly, that is over days to weeks, the brain adapts by producing organic osmolites, for example choline, taurine, myo-inositol, and N-acetyl aspartate. These organic osmolites oppose the hypertonic serum and thus prevent fluid shifts. If the hypernatremia is corrected rapidly with IV fluids, the organic osmolites remain in the brain and cause a shift of fluid from the vasculature to the brain, causing cerebral edema, herniation, and seizures. The management of hypernatremia that occurs gradually is to gradually correct the serum sodium while the CNS adapts. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, impaired ATP production, could be seen in hypoglycemia, which is a common cause of seizures. For this reason, the initial management of any patient with a seizure is a finger-stick blood glucose and dextrose administration if they are hypoglycemic, as this will rapidly terminate seizures. Answer 2. Increased NMDA GABA activity is seen in alcohol withdrawal. Chronic alcohol use causes increased GABA-A activity. The CNS adapts by down-regulating GABA channels and up-regulating NMDA or excitatory channels. Sudden cessation of alcohol consumption leaves the brain with a net excitatory activity given that these receptor changes cause tachycardia, agitation, tremulousness, and seizures. Treatment involves the administration of phenobarbital or benzodiazepines. Answer 3. Medication noncompliance is incorrect as this is a common cause of seizures in epileptics and is certainly possible in this patient. However, the aggressive fluid resuscitation with a slight hypotonic fluid like Ringer lactate makes cerebral edema a more likely complication. And finally, answer 5, osmotic demyelination presents with the, quote, locked-in syndrome with a complete paralysis of the patient with the exception of extraocular movement due to pontine myelinosis. This occurs when hyponatremia is corrected too rapidly rather than hypernatremia. To leave you with a bullet summary, rapid correction of hypernatremia can cause cerebral edema, herniation, and seizures secondary to fluid entering the brain from an osmotic shift caused by the production of organic osmolites. That's all for this review about electrolyte disturbances. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on MedBullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the MedBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow MedBullets on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast.